0: Good morning. Good morning. It is a joy to be here with you this morning to worship the Lord with you. Paul told the church at Philippi that he said, I thank God in all of my remembrance of you. And that is definitely the way that, that we feel about Delray Baptist Church. We are so thankful. For you and and the ways that you have poured into our lives, and please know that there is a church in Philadelphia that prays for you regularly and I especially want to thank those uh, those of you who know that my wife Blair has been wrestling with some health issues uh, recently. I just want to thank you for the way that you've uh, cared for us in this season um, those who who sent meals and and notes of encouragement is just. Uh, means a lot and just so thankful for your friendship and for your partnership in the gospel. So I just wanted to express that to you. Now, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17 says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. It's a great passage that I will not be preaching on this morning. If I were going to preach on that passage this morning, which I'm not, my third point would have been that Jesus is the ultimate friend who loves at all times. And that Jesus is the brother who was born for adversity. Instead, what we want to look at this morning is the adversity that the Lord Jesus was born to, which is his death, his crucifixion. We're going to spend some time considering the crucified king from the gospel of John chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open there. The gospel of John chapter 19. I'm going to read beginning at verse 16. At the conclusion of my reading, I will say this is God's word and I would encourage you to respond. Thanks be to God. John 19, beginning at verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you for your word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we ask, Father, that you would do just that, that that as your word is proclaimed this morning, that the unfolding of your words would give light. That we would be stirred to love Jesus more. That our hearts and our affections would would be lifted and raised towards you. Be exalted in our time. May we know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified this morning. And we pray that in this time, the spirit of God, would use the word of God to reveal the son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in our text this morning, we are at the climactic point in the gospel of John. This is the moment that the entire book has been anticipating the hour of Jesus' death. And if you've read the Gospels, then you're familiar with the interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, you'll remember, was the Roman governor over Judea. So like many territories at that time, Israel was under Roman rule with Caesar as the emperor. And so what Rome would do is they would set up prefects or governors in different regions. And their job was to enforce Roman law and to keep the Jews under control. And so the, it says the Jews, they, they brought Jesus before Pilate on charges of claiming to be a king and basically starting a rebellion against Caesar. Pilate examined Jesus, and based on what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate hears this and he determined that Jesus was not a threat and that he certainly had not done anything deserving the death penalty. And so in chapter 19, verse 4 and 6, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. In verse 12, it says that Pilate sought to release him. And so there was this back and forth between Pilate and the Jews. And when the Jews invoked the name of Caesar and it seemed like a riot was about to start, according to Matthew 27, Pilate gives in to their desire to have Jesus crucified. And so that brings us to our passage today and our first point. Two points today. Point number one, Jesus was crucified. Point number two... Jesus is the king. Jesus was crucified. Jesus is the king. First, Jesus was crucified. Verse 16 says, they took Jesus. They, meaning the soldiers whose job it was to oversee the crucifixion. Verse 17 says, and he went out, referring to the fact that it happened outside the city bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So skull is where we get the term Calvary from. Calvary is skull in Latin. So it's literally shaped like a skull. Verse 18 says, there they crucified him. Now, it's interesting that the writers of the gospels don't give the details of the crucifixion. It just says that he was crucified. Now, there's reasons for that. One reason is that the readers would have been well aware of what a crucifixion was, so it would have been unnecessary to go into the gory details. Another reason is the shame that was associated with crucifixion. It was just the kind of thing that people just didn't talk about publicly. That's how horrible it was. Now, in our culture, we're removed from this kind of, in some ways, from this kind of torture and Brutality, but make no mistake, crucifixion is one of the most cruel and evil inventions that sinful man has ever come up with. Romans 130 talks about people being inventors of evil. But crucifixion was an evil invention. And it had two purposes. Purpose number one was to maximize pain. Purpose number two was to maximize shame to maximize pain and to maximize shame. It was a tool of the Roman government to keep people in line. It was a public way to say, in the most graphic way possible, if you break the law, this will happen to you also. One commentator describes crucifixion in this way, quote, in ancient times, crucifixion was synonymous with horror and shame a death inflicted on slaves, bandits, prisoners of war, and revolutionaries. Josephus terms it the most pitiable of deaths. Cicero called it that cruel and disgusting penalty. Those crucified were made a public spectacle, often being affixed to crosses in bizarre positions and their bodies left to be devoured by vultures. No Roman citizen could be subjected to this terrible punishment without the penalty being sanctioned by the emperor himself. For hours, if not days, the victim would hang in the heat of the sun, stripped naked and struggling to breathe. In order to avoid asphyxiation or suffocation, he had to push himself up with his legs and pull with his arms, triggering muscle spasms that caused almost unimaginable pain. The end would come through heart failure, brain damage caused by reduced oxygen supply, suffocation or shock. Atrocious physical agony, length of torment and public shame combined to make crucifixion a most horrible form of death. End quote. Brothers and sisters, this is what happened to the son of God this happened to Jesus. Verse 17 says, bearing his own cross. So in the crucifixion, you have two wooden beams. You have the horizontal beam and the vertical beam. When it says that he had, he was bearing his own cross, it meant that he carried the horizontal beam. Now there's a detail missing in John's account that the other gospel writers mention, which is that Before Jesus was crucified, there was a scourging that took place. So in Matthew 27, verse 26, it says, Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So in chapter John 19, earlier in verse 1, there's the flogging that we see there, uh, which is d- different from the scourging. So the flogging was more of an attempt by Pilate to appease the crowd. But the scourging is what happened once the sentence of execution was passed. The same commentator describes scourging in this way, quote, In this form of punishment, the victim was stripped naked, tied to a post, and beaten by several soldiers with a whip, whose leather thongs were fitted with pieces of bone or lead or other material. The scourgings were so severe that persons who were subjected to this torture sometimes died. Others were left with their bones and entrails or their insides exposed. End quote. And so in the other gospel accounts, it says that Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross. So when you harmonize them and put them all together, it looks like Jesus began to carry his own cross. But then due to the scourging, at some point he was too weak to continue. And Simon the Cyrene took it from that point on. How is it that the son of God would choose to suffer in this way? To subject himself to the cruelty and the malice of the ones that he created you know we like to skip ahead to what his death accomplished and not think about the death itself and what it accomplished is absolutely glorious but it is appropriate at times for us to just meditate on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ and when we do so we'll better appreciate at least four things so the first thing that we'll better appreciate through meditating on the sufferings of Christ is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. The, 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 the crucifixion is a loudspeaker. God is holy. He's completely separated from sinners. He's morally pure and perfect. He's other. He's in a class by himself. That's what the cross communicates, that there is none like this God considering what he does concerning sin. You ever ask yourself, why did God send Jesus at a time when this was the method of execution? Why didn't he send him in a more civilized time? Why didn't he send them to be lethally injected or hung? It has to be because of the the public nature and the public horror and spectacle of crucifixion just puts on display for the whole world to see that God is holy. Another thing that it will help us to appreciate is the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man, we might, in our civilized age, be tempted to think that people are basically good. But what the cross says is, look, look at what we are capable of. Look at what sin costs. This is it on full display. The ugliness and the wretchedness and the horror of sin right here. Not only will it help us to better appreciate the sinfulness of man, but it will help us to better appreciate our own personal sinfulness. So it's not just the sinfulness of people out there or just the sinfulness of the Jews or the sinfulness of Rome or Pilate. But it's, it's my sin. It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus died. It, it was personal, his death. He died for specific people and for specific sins, our sins. And then the fourth thing that it will help us to appreciate as we meditate on the sufferings of Christ is the unfathomable love of God, (laughs) the steadfast love of God for sinners. Is, Is there any greater display of love than to see our Savior stripped, naked, Vulnerable, undignified, hand stretched out, publicly on display, being made a mockery. What kind of love is that? That Christ would do that for the undeserving. There's a hymn that meditates on this truth called, "O come and mourn with me a while. I'm going to read some of it. It says, O come and mourn with me a while. O come, ye to the Savior's side. O come together, let us mourn. Jesus, our love, is crucified. Seven times he spoke seven words of love, and all three hours his silence cried for mercy on the souls of men. Jesus, our love, is crucified. O break, O break, hard heart of mine, Thy weak self love and guilty pride. His Pilate and his Judas were, Jesus, our love, is crucified. If you don't get that verse, the author is saying that it was, it was my self love. My self love had as much to do with putting Jesus on that cross as Pilate did. That my guilty pride had as much to do with putting Jesus on that cross as Judas did. He continues, a broken heart, a fount of tears, ask and they will not be denied. A broken heart, love's cradle is, Jesus, our love, is crucified. O love of God, O sin of man, in this dread act, your strength is tried, and victory remains with love, for he Our love is crucified. Praise God for the unfathomable love of Jesus that He determined to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus was crucified. That's our first point. Second, Jesus is the King. And you might think that those two things don't go together. How can the one who was crucified at the same time be the king? What kind of king subjects himself to be crucified? But in this text, we see very clearly that Jesus is the king. And first, we see that he's the sovereign king, the sovereign king. Consider what Pilate had inscribed on the cross, Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When someone was crucified, it was common for that person to have whatever their crime was to be posted on the cross. And Pilate decided to have Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, placed above Jesus. And it seems like he did this to spite the Jews. He's, he's teasing them. It's basically as if to say, look at the king of the Jews, bloody, beaten, humiliated, and crucified. But little did he know that that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews spoken of in passages like Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, when God said, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus is the king of the Jews, prophesied in passages like Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus is the king of the Jews who spent his entire earthly ministry talking about ushering in the kingdom of God. And in order for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king. And Jesus himself is the king. He's the sovereign king. Everything that was happening was happening according to God's sovereign plan. Acts chapter 27 or chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So everything that occurred in this account was specifically by the design of a sovereign God. Jesus had already predicted exactly how he was going to die many times in the Gospels. And in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to take it down or to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. We even see God's sovereignty in Pilate's decision making. Isn't it interesting that Pilate gives in to the fear of man to hand Jesus over to be crucified? Pilate shows himself to be a coward in this account because he knows that Jesus was an innocent man. And yet you don't see any fear of man when it comes to Pilate turning Jesus over, right? Or he just turns him over. But it's so interesting that when it comes time for, I'm sorry, he, he gives in to the fear of man. There is fear of man, right? But when it comes time to say what's posted, he says, what I said, I've said. So it's, it's there when he says what he's posted that he decides to have a backbone all of a sudden. That's because God is at work in his sovereignty. This is a reminder of Proverbs chapter 16, verse one. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You also see the sovereignty of God in the account of the soldiers in Jesus' clothing. Verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So it was common for the soldiers presiding over the crucifixion to take the clothes of the condemned person for themselves. And that quote is from Psalm 22, verse 18, a prophetic psalm written a thousand years before the time of Jesus. God was in complete control of the situation. So Jesus likely had two garments. He had a cloak, which was the outer garment, and then a tunic, which was the inner garment. So the tunic was one seamless piece that would have been worth more than had they ripped it. And so they figured out a way for one person to get it. They gambled for it. They cast lots. It would be similar to us rolling dice. The soldiers were simply doing what Roman soldiers did, but little did they know that as they were doing that, they were fulfilling prophecy. And it's funny because Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So not only did God know or God decide that lots would be cast for Jesus' clothes, but he also decided who would win. <laughs> so God made the decision who would actually win. Jesus is the sovereign king, but not only that, he is the compassionate king. Verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so in contrast to the four soldiers, you have these four women mentioned in verse 25. And John, the the human author of this gospel, he focuses in on himself and Jesus' mother, Mary. Mary. Now, by this time, Mary would have probably been in her 50s, and she most likely would have been a widow. And we can see the compassion of Jesus in making sure that his mother is taken care of. And this is just an appropriate word on Mother's Day. Moms, do you notice the care of Jesus for his mother? Jesus is in agony, in torment. Dying on the cross. If if any time was a time for Jesus to say, you know what, I'm just gonna think about myself and my pain right now, that, that would be the time. But that's not what he's doing. His heart is going out to others and it's going out to his mother specifically. Well to the mom that is trusting in Jesus, he has the same care and compassion for you. Whether your kids are newborns or toddlers teenagers or adult, Jesus has the same compassion for you. That means that if you feel overwhelmed, Jesus knows and understands how hard it can be. If you're discouraged, he's aware of your discouragement. And if you're rejoicing, he's the source of your joy. Whatever season you're in, you can cast all of your cares on Jesus because he cares and he is the compassionate king. Not only that, but he's also the king of the nations. The king of the nations. Verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the sign on the cross says Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. But notice that it's written in three different languages. Aramaic, the language of the Jews. Latin, the language of the Roman soldiers, and Greek, the language of the empire as a whole. Again, we see the irony, Pilate didn't mean it, but in having the sign inscribed in three languages, he was foreshadowing the spread of the gospel among the nations. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the Gentiles as well. Later on in Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28, That same prophetic psalm, it says all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The fact that we are right now in a country far from Israel. Thousands of years later, reading this account. In a language that didn't even exist during the time of Christ, shows how true it is that Jesus is King of the nations. Revelation 7 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Jesus is the king of the nations. So as we begin to close and we'll soon head into the Lord's Supper just three points of application. Application point number one, very simple. (laughs) Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Turn from your sin, look to the Savior, and trust in him. Believe in Christ with all of your heart and all of your soul. Forsake your works, so turn away from your righteousness Anything that you think you can earn before God, turn away from your own moral performance, turn away from your sin, turn away from your ungodliness, and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. God will never put to shame the one who is trusting in Jesus. Believe in him, rely on him, depend on him, cling to him, trust in him Romans 5 verse 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise be to God that God is a God who he doesn't justify the righteous. He doesn't justify those who have it all together. God is a God who justifies the ungodly. He's the one who justifies the wicked. That is good news for all of us in here this morning. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Second point of application is embrace Jesus Christ as your king. Embrace Jesus Christ as your king. One of the popular forms of Christianity, which is not Christianity at all, is the idea that, oh, I can take Jesus to be my Lord or take Jesus to be my Savior, but all the Lord stuff, we don't really have to worry about that. But Jesus saves me, and because I either signed a card or because I prayed a prayer or something like that, then... I'm okay with God and I can just continue to live like the world for the rest of my life. And because I did that, then I'll go to heaven when I die. That is a lie. That's not true at all. There's no one who has Jesus as savior who doesn't also embrace him as king, as Lord. And what do kings do? Kings tell us how to live our lives. (laughs) your body. Is the mic back on? Okay. Praise God. He's sovereign over microphones too. Embrace Jesus as your king. And where do we get our marching orders from our king? It's the word of God, right? It's God's word. It's what he tells us he has done for us and what he tells us we are to do, how we are to live in light of who he is we must embrace him as our king. And then the third point of application is consider the cross. Consider the cross. Believer, Christian, consider the cross when you sin. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Consider the cross when you sin. What do you do when you sin? When you fall into sin, what do you do with it? Do you find yourself weighed down by guilt that just continues to hover with you indefinitely? Do you say okay i did this so now let me let me just really get really spiritual and do better in my quiet times and 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 do better in my church attendance and 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 do better in learning hymns and that'll that'll kind of even the scales it's not what we're called to do what the believer is called to do when we sin is we're called to consider the cross consider what Christ has done that that on the cross jesus says it is finished That means he paid the penalty for every last one of our sins, past, present, and future. One person once said, a theologian said that that all sin, all of our sin was future at the time that Jesus Christ died on the cross. We must consider that he's paid it. So we don't have anything to add into that account. He's paid it all. We must consider the cross when we sin. Consider the cross when you're sinned against when someone sins against you, consider the cross. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see the basis there? You, you, see, you see the foundation, uh, the, the, the power that we have to be able to forgive is because we forgive as those who have been forgiven by God. It's God's forgiveness of us that enables us to forgive others who sin against us. And in order to do that, we must remember the cross. We must remember that the person that sinned against me is just as much in need of grace and forgiveness as I am. And I'm in just as much need as they are. We must consider the cross. Consider the cross when you suffer. Consider the cross when you suffer. Hebrews 12, verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Many of us who are going through very difficult seasons, Very hard trials of suffering. What do we do with that? The temptation, I know my temptation, is to begin to question God, to begin to ask God the why questions. Why why are these things happening? What's going on? When when will this be over? It's not bad to ask that. We, We have examples of that from the Psalms, but our our first impulse and if it's not our first it should be our second or our third, fourth, fifth and sixth is, is to look to the cross is to look to Jesus to look to the one who hung and stretched himself out there and suffered unspeakable suffering infinitely worse than any suffering than we could ever imagine and he says I understand I understand and he's the only one who in some way had absolutely no deserving of suffering whatsoever. He's the only innocent person who's ever suffered, and yet he did it. He did it so that we could look to him in the midst of our own suffering and see his example of patience, his example of long suffering, and cling to him for hope and strength in the midst of trials. Consider the cross as you disciple other believers. So I I know the elders here, and I know they have a a passion for encouraging discipleship. It is believers walking with other believers through uh, the Bible or or good, solid books and getting together and helping each other to grow in grace. Garrett talks about helping each other to heaven a lot. Well, Well, As we're involved in that, we must consider the cross. For those who are in discipleship relationships, if you're discipling someone, consider the cross as you teach. Be careful of that subtle tendency to teach Christianity as merely a list of rules and regulations. There's certainly rules and regulations. There's certainly ethical demands that the Lord places upon us, but that is not the foundation of our hope. We must teach, we must disciple in a way that highlights the gospel, that raises up what Christ has done for us on Calvary so that, so that we can Those who who we're helping will avoid two temptations. One temptation is the temptation to legalism, that is adding to the gospel and, and adding the things that we do and thinking the things that we do make ourselves right in the sight of God, or the temptation to license, which we talked about earlier, which is it doesn't matter how I live at all, I can just do my thing and it's all good. Focusing on the cross as we disciple will help in that. Consider the cross in your relationships. Remember that the same cross that you embrace applies to the believer that you disagree with. The same cross that you embrace applies to the believer that you disagree with. And just, I just heard Pastor Garrett talk about how this week y'all are going to have a family meeting talking about, you know, believers having differences across political lines. This, this, is, a, this is a good word for you. If, 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 you, if you cling to your political party and you believe, man, my political party is in line with the Bible, it's not a political party, it's just the Bible. The problem is that people on both sides say, it's just the Bible, right? Well, if, well, if, that's, if that's you, you have to remember that the same cross applies to Republican believers that applies to Democrat believers, The same cross applies to those who watch Fox News and those who watch MSNBC, even if you think it's fake news. The same cross applies, consider the cross in your relationships. Are you in a dry place? Are you discouraged? Consider the cross. Anyone struggling with depression, seasons of darkness, when it feels like the cloud will not lift, Got to consider the cross. We must consider the one who was in such a pit of darkness that the sun hid itself. He was in a pit of darkness that excluded him from fellowship with his father that he enjoyed for all eternity up until that point. But eventually, the cloud lifted and Jesus rose from the grave in spectacular light. Praise God. That is our hope. Consider the cross if you're discouraged. I'm going to end with this quote from a Puritan author, Matthew Henry. He says this. Now let us pause a while and with an eye of faith look upon Jesus. Was ever sorrow like unto his sorrow? See him who was clothed with glory, stripped of it all, and clothed with shame. Him who was the praise of angels made a reproach of men. Him who had been with eternal delight and joy in the bosom of his father, now in the extremities of pain and agony. See him bleeding. See him struggling. See him dying. See him and love him. Love him and live to him. And study what we shall render, End quote. And when he says study what we shall render, he's picking up from psalm 116 verse 12 says what shall i render to the lord for all his benefits to me and the answer i will lift up the cup of salvation and i will call on the name of the lord delray baptist church let us lift up the cup of salvation and let us call on the name of the lord amen amen let's pray Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that there is no one like him. There's no one who lived like him. There's no one who died like him. And there's no one who reigns like him. Would you help us to, by your grace, continually lift up the cup of salvation and call upon your name?